0: It's not just time to get away. It's time to travel with Anita from around the world to across Georgia. She covers it all. Away. Let's Let's away. Now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard Travel with Anita and Friends. Now, here's a question for you today. Do you travel to explore and learn more or are you looking to relax and have a little fun leaving all of those worries behind back at home and maybe just kicking up your feet, kicking back? Well, I am often asked, why do I love to travel so much? And especially because for me now, I also travel for work. So when I'm out and about, I'm having the fun, but I'm also working. I have always had a really, really large curiosity and keen interest in knowing more about what's going on in other parts of the world, and also learning more about history. And through that, when I travel, I have become very, very fond of museums, especially those that tell us a little bit more about who we are or who we were. And then we can also learn more about the things that we thought we already knew. You know, those things that, you know, well, I know that already. But then you go to a museum or you read a book or you find some more information. And it's like, wow, I didn't know that. Because museums teach us a lot about the past. Everything really has a story. And when we can Easily learn how things were done or how people did things, how life looked and what things were like for people. Even things like what people wore, what people ate, their day-to-day lives. I really love those living histories because it is, it's like it brings history back alive and we can really get a true sense of how things were and how things would have been back in other times, back in history. So if living history, those times gone by, help us understand a little bit more about ourselves as well. And I love that kind of thing. But museums also, also, they make us smarter (laughs) because, again, we a lot of times go in there thinking we already know all of the information. But when we visit museums, we gain some new knowledge. Uh, It could be art. It could be sort of artifacts and objects that really tell stories about the past, about the people, about the things. And many museums even partner with uh, historical societies and schools and things like that to enhance that education. So it's not only people like myself who like to go visit museums, but other people too, really people of all ages, even in schools. And museums are also great for research. When I am doing my podcast, Quarter Miles Travel, I'm doing a ton and ton of research. And what you'll find is that the museums have really called on the academics and the researchers and regular folks also to share their expertise, share the information that they have examining old artifacts is a great way to collect information and really again to tell us a little bit more about the things that people use some of those things for could be old pottery because a lot of times when we see that we think oh old pottery was it used just for food well maybe it was used for food and stirring things but it could have been used for other things too ceremonies and all kinds of things so we get a lot of great information And I also think, too, museums can inspire us. They're great for stimulating new ideas and kind of recharging a lot of the perspectives that we have, those new perspectives. So when you visit museums, I always say look at it from all of these aspects, not just that they're holding history there but they're also holding things that can inspire us for things that we can do today. Out of those great masters of uh, artwork, uh, I don't know if there are any artists out there listening to this but when you go to a museum and you see that, aren't you a little bit inspired that maybe you can paint or maybe you can draw or do something as exquisite and extraordinary as some of the great masters. And then the other thing too that I like about museums is that they are a testament to our preservation of humanity that we are keeping history and the, the history of the people and the places and the things and the culture the foods all of those things we're keeping those things alive it really gives us um sort of that window into ourselves so that we learn more about ourselves and get to know more about the the things the events that took place that have led us to who we are today So all of those are great, great, great things about museums. So if you're like me, when I go to a city, I want to check out those museums. It could be a history museum, it could be an art museum, really any type of museum. And I found with my travels that there are all kinds of museums. I've even found teddy bear museums and doll museums and all kinds of things. So there's a whole world of museums out there for us. But I will say one of my favorite museums is the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum at Yorktown, Virginia. And they have several galleries there that when you talk about taking a step through time with their exhibits, they have both permanent and temporary ones that really are like definitely like a walk back in time. So visiting the museum, you're walking back in time with American history and the Revolutionary War. Now, they're open every day from nine to five. And you start your tour with the museum's award winning introductory film, catch liberty fever and it sets the stage for the indoor gallery and also the outdoor living history experiences which are really 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 my favorites and with all uh, you feel that you know about america and our independence the american revolution timeline takes you on a visual journey from the 13 colonies in the 1750s to the westward expansion of the new u.s so this is perfect for us because if you uh, have lived during any of the time that, you know, people are talking about uh, some parts of history as though they were there right there as part of it. When you go to this museum, you'll come back and you're talking as though maybe you were there as part of the, of the Revolutionary War. I mean, people will know that you were not, but you will have so much information that you can share with them. Now, they have five different exhibits. And the five different themes. And the first one is the British Empire and America, which features really the geography and the culture and the economy of America prior to the revolution and our relationship with Britain. Really, kind of the reason why the settlers wanted to come over to America in the first place. And then the next uh, exhibit is The Changing Relationship, Britain and North America. And this period captures what was taking place as the idea of independence was sort of taking root. And the British measures to tax and control the colonies was really, I guess you could say, starting to get out of the cellar skin. So they were ready for independence. And then they move on to the revolution. And this is one of the most exciting exhibits with their 4D Experiential Siege of Yorktown Theater because it really brings that Yorktown ba- battlefield of 1781 to life they have wind and smoke and thunder of cannon fire so you feel like you're really there in it and it tells a lot of diverse stories including women such as Sarah Osborne who followed her Continental Army uh, husband um, and served coffee and, and food to the troops I mean she found a place a position for herself in the war and Alexander Hamilton in his first military role and his famous words of Russian boys So there are enslaved and free African-American stories there as well. And they question, uh, do we defy this war or do we contribute to the Revolutionary War efforts? So this provides the best outlook for, you know, for looking at what all of these people were going through at the time. Now, the new nation, it challenges and promises the United States, right? Is that's what they're talking about in that portion of it. So like the what's now, forming a new government with an unstable economy and social tensions, is all covered in that exhibit and then the final one is the American people and the exhibit looks at the changing face of the nation and what is our new identity but when you go outside there are three ships which brought the first settlers to the area those ships were Susan constant Godspeed and discovery and it carried boys and men looking for those opportunities to start this settlement and their stories come alive with the recreation of the three ships that brought the America's first permanent English colonists to Virginia in 1607 Now, I like this because it really is a way for you to go get on board those ships so that you can have um, a sense of what it would have been like. I mean, here they are. They've been planning. They've been talking about, you know, going to, you know, a new land for new opportunities and to get away from all of the British control. But now they're actually getting on the ships. They're stepping on board. They're leaving behind all of the things that they know and they love and their families. So what was that like? Of course, we don't have all of the answers. I talked with Kaya Mosley who's the interpretive supervisor at the museum there. And she shares many stories as part of my podcast, Quarter Miles Travel. And she brings a significant part of that American history story to life. The historical interpreters dress in clothing from that time period and will share the stories of the ships and the passengers. And like I said, those uh, stories are so fascinating because... We interpret what happened, but those ships, now they didn't have the luxury that we have now in sailing. So Kaya talks about, you know, how they sailed and how the life on board the ships would be and really some of the stops that they had to make because it took a couple of months for them to sail across and reach the new land to start the new settlement. So through the rest of the show, I will share my conversation that I had with Kaya Mosley who is the historical interpreter there at the museum. And she shares some fascinating stories. I think you will find some of them funny, some of them heartwarming, and some of them a little unbelievable too. (laughs) But they're all great stories because they're our story. They're the American story. So back in a moment here on Travel with Anita and Friends and my conversation with Kaya. to step on board a ship heading to a destination with little known about it and not yet discovered you're leaving behind all that you know family friends and your way of life that's the story of the three ships godspeed susan constant and discovery bringing the first english settlers to what will become the united states of america welcome back to travel with anita and friends the journey of these three ships and their desire to um, settle is filled with courage but conflict bravery and disappointment, friendship, but also betrayal, excitement and despair. And on my podcast, Quartermouse Travel, I talk with Kaya Mosley, where she shares their stories, and I'm sharing that with you today. On December 20th, 1606, three ships set sail on the first expedition of the Virginia Company. The Susan Constant, Godspeed, and a small ship Discovery leave England under the command of Captain Christopher Newport. Now he's not new to this. He's an experienced privateer who had sailed to the West Indies many times since the 1590s. But in 1605, Newport made an exploratory voyage along the North American coast to explore the area because at this time, the size of the North American continent was not yet known. What he was in search of was a northern route to the South Sea or what we call the Pacific Sea. In 1606, King James of England charters the Virginia Company of London to oversee this exploration in the colony. This new company is created with the hopes of finding passage to the South Sea by way of waterways and tributary rivers, but also to establish a colony in Virginia. The three ships set sail with an elite group of passengers, gentlemen as they were called, The gentlemen were not members of nobility, but they are distinguished from men who practice a trade or profession. Also on board was a sealed set of documents, not to be opened until they reached Virginia. These papers would designate leadership in the new colony. Now what lies ahead is a long journey, one which would take them several months to complete. But how did the three ships travel? Did one lead the way or did they sail together? To answer my questions throughout the podcast, I reach out to Kaya Mosley, interpretive supervisor of the three recreated ships at the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum at Yorktown. She tells us how they made it across to Virginia.
1: First three uh, ships that brought the English colonists to Jamestown, and they did come together as a little fleet of three. Um, and as far as we know, they were together for the the whole trip. They don't mention ever being separated or losing sight of each other or anything like that. So there was a four and a half month journey from start to finish and they all made it together as a little fleet on the way across.
0: Smooth sailing it was not. The trip starts with a delay. Kaya shares what happened.
1: Uh, we think they left from the London area. So they first come down, um, they'll they'll come down and into the English Channel so they've begun their voyage but then they sit in the English Channel for four or five weeks according to some of the documents because they had what they said were contrary winds so winds that are blowing against the ship and they can't they need to wait for the winds to change direction for them to be able to get out so I, I tell people if you've ever sat on the tarmac <laughs> on an airplane for a couple hours you can at least be happy that your airplane was sitting still and you weren't stuck there for six weeks
0: Of the over 100 passengers on board, there is a gentleman by the name of John Smith who becomes very well known for his role in establishing the first permanent English colony at Jamestown, Virginia. Although, on the journey over, Smith challenges Admiral and Captain Newport's command and is imprisoned. Both men were experienced explorers. They were well versed in navigation. However, Newport's experience made him the choice for this voyage. Kaya shares why.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I think is so interesting about this particular voyage is that the the captain that they had for Susan Constant, which was the biggest ship, and he was also the admiral of the fleet, his name was Christopher Newport, and by this point he had done 10 or 11 transatlantic voyages. So he's very experienced, so we kind of often have this idea that people are just sort of blindly setting off into the unknown, never knowing where they're going to land. But Christopher Newport knew this route that they took. He knew how to cross the ocean because he'd done it so many times. He was a great guy to put in charge of the voyage.
0: Newport has over 100 passengers sailing with him among the three ships. Now, this is long before passenger ships and sailing across the Atlantic as we know it. And while there are no detailed records to describe the exact conditions, Because these ships were cargo ships, that lets us know that they would have had to provide their own area to claim their own spot and settle into the conditions of sometimes being hot, sometimes being cold, sometimes being wet, or humid as they sail. Kaya tells us about the information that they do have on the number of passengers and the conditions on board.
1: We know there were 71 people total on board Susan Constant, there were 52 on Godspeed, and there were 21 on Discovery. That counts the crew as well as the colonists. So we don't have a breakdown of those numbers from the time period, but our curators have done an estimated breakdown. So for Susan Constant, we think that's about 54 passengers versus around 17 crew members. Mm. But keeping in mind, none of these ships are meant to carry passengers. That's not really a big thing. And so their cargo vessels, typically you would just see the crew on board and the lower decks would be filled with cargo. So on this voyage, there really are not um, special accommodations for colonists. They're kind of bringing their own with them and placing them on the cargo decks where they can find a spot.
0: Okay. But what was the day-to-day life like on board? We have two accounts of the voyage
1: um, uh, in the form of, uh, one was a letter that was written by a man named George Percy back to someone in England. And then the other is an account by uh, John Smith, who most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they say pretty much nothing (laughs) about what life was like below decks. Most of the time they talk about, so they talk about the very beginning, the, uh, being stuck in the English Channel, some storms that they had there. And they talk about what they did in their different island stops on the way over. But we can kind of extrapolate because of other voyages from the same time period that it would have been dark down below because almost everything is closed up to keep the water out. It's a little bit of grading at the t- uh, above the columnist head to let in some light and air. Uh, there were 54 people in a place that wasn't meant to hold people (laughs) so it's going to be crowded it's going to be stuffy not very luxurious at all um all of the food that they're eating while they're on board the ship will be preserved so it's salted or pickled or dried and made into a lot of soups and stews or you know like big bowls of seasoned rice or something like that it doesn't seem like anything very unusual happened on board so out of those All three ships that we talked about and all of those people, only one man died on the way over, which is pretty astounding (laughs) for the conditions that they were living in.
0: Considering the conditions they were sailing under, the length of time and number of months of their journey, it's pretty amazing. More people did not become ill and die. I
1: asked Kaya what happened to the one person who did not survive the journey. That's one of the things they write about. They were stopped in one of the Caribbean islands, the island of Mona. And they had sent a party ashore to get fresh water because they mentioned that just before they arrived at that island, their water smelled so vile that no one could stand to drink it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so they sent a bunch of people ashore to get fresh water. And a number of the colonists went ashore to explore as well. And they said that because of the heat of the area, all of the, the shore party was overcome by that heat. And because of that, they could not revive Edward Brooks. He's the man that died. And this is the quote, the fat melted within him. What? (laughs) I know, what does that even mean? (laughs) We're not 100% sure, but we think it had something to do with the heat. You know, maybe heat exhaustion or heat stroke or something like that, because everybody else had been overcome by that heat and their water was undrinkable before they landed.
0: More coming up on what it's like sailing across the Atlantic to start a settlement that will become the United States of America. Back in a moment here on Travel with Anita and Friends. If you were a boat, my darling, a boat, my darling I'd be the wind at your back If you were afraid, my darling, afraid, my darling I'd be the courage you
1: lack Mm. To sail on a dream on a crystal clear ocean To ride on
0: the crest of a wild raging storm you set sail across the Atlantic in hopes of finding fortune and new opportunities, leaving all that you know behind? Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. I talk with my friend Kaya Mosley from Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum in Yorktown, Virginia. She shares a bit about the conditions on board the first three English ships as they sailed to what would become Virginia. That would be Susan Constant, Godspeed, and Discovery. Here's what she had to say about life on board and all of the conditions and just what it would be like to leave your home behind searching for new opportunities. With the many, many stops along the way, Admiral Newport was skillfully guiding the ships toward Virginia. His experience and knowledge of the area sure did help them not only navigate the waters, but also taking them through the routing that would also keep his passengers alive. It was a long, long, long voyage as kind of years?
1: Well, they left just before Christmas in 1606, so January, uh, excuse me, December 20th. And then they, they came down the Thames River, took them about a week, and then they spent that time in the English Channel. So by the time they reached their first stop, which was the Canaries, it was late February, or mid-February, I think it was. Yeah, so the, the preferred route across the Atlantic at this period was to come down and kind of jump in the trade winds So it takes you in this big clockwise circle. And when you look at it, if you don't know why they did it, it looks like they went ridiculously out of their way. Why in the world would they put all those extra miles on their voyage? But um, that's the preferred route of the time because once you jump into those trade winds, you have very consistent winds and currents that uh, take you to where you want to go. There's also a bunch of places to stop. So they stop in the Canaries and they stop six different times in different Caribbean islands. And when they go ashore, they write about uh, collecting fresh food and water. So they get water, they get, uh, what do they talk about? Sweet potatoes and plantains and pineapples. Um, so you can imagine like if you just spent six or seven weeks eating salted pork and dried peas and beans, you know, and Ship's Biscuit for that whole time, how amazing is that pineapple gonna taste when you first put that to your lips?
0: <laughs> well, some grapefruit down in the Caribbean. I'm sure they love that for sure. <laughs> Although Newport was familiar with the West Indies and the islands along the way, there was always the possibility of encountering people who lived on the islands and called them home. There were stops in the Canary Islands, Cape Verde, and other islands to replenish supplies. A stop in Puerto Rico, which was already occupied by the Spanish who colonized the land and the Tiano people, would have brought encounters with local residents. What were those encounters like for the passengers?
1: There were there was one island that they stopped at that was inhabited by indigenous people. And it doesn't seem like they went ashore there right away because they do talk about people coming out in canoes and trading food with them. But it seems like the other island, there was one other island where I, I believe they did set up like a perimeter, a guard perimeter, because they were concerned about um, having interactions with some of the folks but some of those islands were uninhabited as well. It's like uh, like three or four days at each island stop, so it does add up.
0: On May 14th, 1607, Newport and the passengers aboard the three ships arrived at the Powhatan River, which was renamed the James River. The area afforded a harbor deep enough for the ships to safely dock and secluded enough for any Spanish ships sailing by. After a long passage from England, What was their experience sailing along the coastline in search of the best spot to stop? Kaya tells us about their time on board reaching landing and how the strategy of finding the best spot was chosen.
1: Shortly before they arrived or before they sighted the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, they went through a pretty severe storm. So they got bounced around and they kind of lost their bearings a little bit. But once they sighted the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, they all came in there and then They brought another little boat with them, it's called a shallop, and it was taken apart in in pieces and stored below. So one of the first things they do when they get into the bay is to take that shallop in its pieces, go ashore, put it back together. So now they have a long boat that you can use a small sail on if the weather is cooperating, and if not, you can row it. So they've got this very shallow draft, doesn't need a whole lot of water to go in, boat that you can row around and explore. And so, what they likely did was send that boat and their smallest ship, which is Discovery, uh, kind of first to explore things, make sure the water's deep enough for the bigger ships to go. So you don't want to travel 6,000 miles just to run aground and be stuck there. Well, they knew they wanted to go to the Chesapeake Bay, in that area, and then they, the company, sent them with a list of instructions. The document that we still have is called Instructions by Way of Advice and they were given a list of criteria to look for in deciding where to actually plant their colony. Uh, so they looked around for a couple of weeks. They explored the different rivers and they were looking for a place that was easy to defend, that was far enough up the, uh, up the bay or up a river that they wouldn't be subjected to, um, they wouldn't be very visible to any Spanish ships that may go by, because they're still, they're really worried about uh, conflict with the Spanish at this point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They want to find a place that has good water. They're told not to offend the naturals, meaning um, don't just waltz in there and boot people off their land because they're hoping to buy food from them. So they don't want to make people angry right away because they want to be able to trade and buy food. And then one of the biggest things um, that I think we don't think about today as modern day people is that they needed a place with deep water to get their ships because for the foreseeable future, all of their supplies are coming by ship. And so they actually pass up a place that was a little bit further down from where they, they wound up landing. That was maybe a little bit better uh, ground, and but it didn't have a port. They couldn't get their ships in. Mm-hmm. And so when they chose Jamestown Island where they finally landed, they mentioned that there was um, six fathoms of water, which is 36 feet so close to the shore, they could tie their ships up to the trees. That's really helpful for loading and unloading supplies and things like that. I think today we think about, you know, trucking things in or flying things in so we don't necessarily think of how important a criteria that was for them.
0: Okay, it's after landing. And Kaya mentions that they opened the papers they were given when leaving London and instructed not to open until landing. John Smith? is listed to be part of a 13-man council to lead the building of the settlement. The colonists come prepared to start establishing a colony. There are carpenters on board, a blacksmith, a mason, a tailor, barber, and even two surgeons. The territory where they settle is the home of the Powhatan Indians, who are a confederation of tribes who live on what is in present day Richmond, Virginia to coastal North Carolina, with Jamestown squarely located in their territory. Kaya describes what the Powhatans and the colonists experienced as they arrived and started to make this spot their settlement.
1: So this would not have been the Powhatan's first encounter with Europeans because there had been a Spanish Jesuit mission uh, over on the York River. So just across the peninsula, maybe 20 or 30 years prior to this. Um, But, there is a there's one there are two accounts of this voyage like i said percy and smith and they do write about um hearing people like when they're going ashore they hear cries in the woods and they do write about sending people ashore to explore and in one area um they uh some of the local powhatans fire arrows at them and wound some of the english they kind of go running back to the ships to get on the ships and at that point they fire the guns that they have aboard just kind of into the trees to make a big noise. Um, but yeah, almost as soon as they get here, they're having interactions with the Powhatan people.
0: Captain Newport and a small group of men explore the area of the James River where they meet Powhatan Indians and a tribal leader. The meeting between the Powhatan and the colonists doesn't start off as friendly as I'm sure they had hoped. Within less than two weeks, hostilities between the colonists and the Indians break out with close to 200 Indians killed and several colonists. Although there are conflicts between the colonists and native people, the Powhatan offered supplies and food to the colonists during their dire time. Back in a minute to hear more about the settlement in Jamestown, Virginia, here on Travel with Anita and Friends. The Building of America starts with three ships, Susan Constant, Godspeed, and Discovery. As settlers plant themselves on the banks of Virginia, ships make the return journey back for supplies. I have that story here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Kaya Mosley takes us back in time with their stories of discovery and perseverance. On June 22nd, Captain Newport takes the Susan Constant and Godspeed back to London, filled with what they believe to be gold. But when they arrive, they find that it is fool's gold, a mineral which looks a lot like gold, but it isn't. When he leaves for England, he leaves behind the majority of the colonists and the discovery ship for them to use as needed. The colonists from the start were in dire need of supplies. And shortly after Newport leaves, most of the colonists perish, leaving only a small group of about 30 plus. Newport leads several missions to bring food and more passengers to Jamestown. These missions become known as the First and Second Supply Missions, between 1607 and 1611, to help establish and maintain the Virginia settlement. When he returns, he comes with more men, an additional 120, who are now more mouths to feed. And as Newport experiences the great need for supplies, he quickly sets sail for London again this time taking a Powhatan Indian with him. He is not selling the noteworthy Susan Constant and the Godspeed, which brought the maiden varge of sellers to the new land. Kaya shares what we know about
1: the Susan Constant and Godspeed. Uh, Two of the ships went back. Susan Constant and Godspeed returned to England and they returned to their original owners. And after, we know they made it back safely, but after that, we don't really see much more about them in any of the historical records. There are supply ships that come, but they are typically different ships each time.
0: There are multiple voyages for supplies for the colonists and also to take goods traded and gained near the colony back to England. With the frequent travel, planning for safe travel and avoiding storms would require expert navigational skills, but also mother nature can step in. Here Kaya shares the story of one mission.
1: So in 1609, there was a fleet of nine ships that left England for Virginia. And one of those ships was called the Sea Venture. It was the biggest one in the fleet. It had a very experienced Admiral aboard. It had the new governor aboard. And it also had our friend Christopher Newport who was captaining that vessel. So he made multiple trips back and forth. And this fleet set out for Jamestown in May. And or in June, and then tour about five or six weeks in, they ran into a very severe hurricane. And we have two accounts of what that hurricane was like for the people on the sea venture. And it was something else. They talk about the ship um, spitting out her oakum, which is the stuff that is caulked into the seams to keep water from coming in, right? So she was spitting that out. There were leaks everywhere. They look down in the hold and they can see water that's like waist deep coming in. They have everybody on the ship, including the governor taking turns pumping the bilges 24 hours a day for four straight days and nights. Um, they talk about uh, ship's biscuit, which is like the bread that they eat shooting out of the bilge pumps while they're pumping. So they think, well, maybe the leaks are in the bread room and they go down there and they can't find them and they eventually run out of the items that you would normally use to caulk and stuff into the seams. So they start taking pieces of salted meat and jamming it into the seams between the planks to try to stop the water from coming in. None of it worked. (laughs) So they're still uh, leaking incredibly. And after about four days, they finally, they're just exhausted and they just kind of give up and they break open the alcohol that they have on board to kind of toast each other assuming that they're all going to die and this is their last toast and they're going to meet you know again in heaven and in the middle of the night and early morning the admiral of the fleet spies land and they're in the middle of the ocean where in the world could they be well it turns out that they're right by bermuda and they manage to run the ship aground in between two coral reefs so that it doesn't sink right away They salvage what they can from the ship, they get everybody off safely, and they live on Bermuda for the next nine or 10 months. And while they're there, they build two new ships. So about 10 months after the rest of the fleet had gotten to Jamestown broken and battered and bruised, and assuming these guys were lost at sea, here they come sailing up the river, like, hey guys, how's it going? (laughs) And to me, I just think that is the most amazing story. I honestly think, you know, sometimes we, we watch movies about historical things and, and they, they put stuff in there that is really unrealistic to make it exciting. Uh-huh. You would not have to add anything to this story if you wanted to make a movie out of it. It is just incredible.
0: That is an incredible story. And talk about luck. Oh, my gosh. Well, here's the real
1: kicker is that, you? I mean, if you were shipwrecked on Bermuda as an English person in 1609, you would probably think that was the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. But what was going on in Jamestown while they were there on Bermuda? It was the starving winter that we talk about, where the colonists were under siege in the fort and they lost such, um, such a large amount of their population. So imagine thinking this is the worst thing that could ever have happened to you and then coming into Jamestown just after that starving time and seeing what you missed. Talk about perspectives. <laughs> It's pretty incredible. Had they, given, you know, had they given up and cracked that wine open you know, a day earlier, yes, we would exactly. never have known any of that story. And was that the Admiral's last voyage or did he go back again? Uh, so the Admiral for that voyage was a man named George Summers, Sir George Summers. And he, um, after they got to Jamestown, they decided to send uh, some ships out to try to get more food. And he volunteered to go back to Bermuda so, he took one of the ships they had built in Bermuda to go back there. But unfortunately, when he was in Bermuda, he died. Uh, they sent a couple ships out and they, they were able to get some fish. I don't know that the, the, the one that went to Bermuda did not go back to Jamestown because um, when George Summers died, his son or nephew or somebody was there as well. And he was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm Lord Summers now, so I'm going to go back to England and claim my inheritance.
0: Talk about a fantastic story. That mission was certainly meant to be completed. You can only imagine the joy of the colonists as they see the supply arrive on the sea voyage. The second supply mission that arrived in October of 1608 with Newport commanding the Mary Margaret. On board there were much needed supplies and more colonists. But this time among them are two women who are recorded as being the first women to come to the Virginia colony. They're the wife of Thomas Forrest and her maid, Anna Burris. You can tour the recreated ships at the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum in Yorktown.
1: You'll meet Kaya.
0: Kaya shares what your experience will include.
1: Uh, So the ships that we have at Jamestown are all recreations, but they are the same size as the original vessels that they represent. So when you step aboard, you'll be seeing the same space and size that the early colonists had. Um, There's very little information about the ships themselves except their size and their names and their captains. And so what researchers did in order to be able to recreate the ships was look at other ships from the same time period. There are some um, fragments of English shipbuilding treatises that are still around that they looked at. And there are there's actually a lot of maritime archaeology from sunken ships from the same time period all that information um, was taken by professional researchers and put together to kind of come up with an idea of what the ship should look like and then that was given to modern day naval architects who designed ships for the builders to build one of the biggest things that i like people to understand when they when they see the ships at jamestown is you know again we talked earlier about they're not just kind of going into this blind you know, they know what they're doing. They, sailing is a profession. The mariners on board would have served apprenticeships and spent years learning how to operate the vessel and take care of the vessel. And then you've got the officers above them who would have spent years learning how to navigate. Um, You know, navigation is is an art form, but it's also transitioning into a science at this period. So they are able to figure out their latitude based on the position of the sun and, and other stars. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they know what they're doing. They know where they're going yes. and they are able to do it multiple times. So back and forth and get back to the same place that they want to be. So these guys, these guys are professionals.
0: It's time for you to plan a visit to Jamestown Settlement and Revolution Museum at Yorktown. Visit their website, historyisfun.org. And to hear the full conversation, visit my website, Travel with Anita. And there you will find my podcast, Quarter Miles Travel the story of the three ships, and also the story of the first women who helped shape America. And that would be English women, African women, and native women that were already there, helping the men when they first arrived and taking the American story on through to as the other women from Africa and England arrived on Virginia soil as well. So check out the website, Travel with Anita, and listen to the podcast, Quarter Miles Travel, where you can hear this story and many other stories about America and the various states around the U.S. as well. Thanks for joining me today. We'll be back with another great show in two weeks here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Bye-bye. Oh, I want to get-